Chapter 19 Wait here, the old hermit said, and he scampered down the curved path and vanished beyond the pines. Kenneth watched the old man and then turned to his fallen horse, struggling on the ground behind him. The animal fought to right itself, but with a broken front leg and an arrow protruding from its shoulder, the large beast had little hope. Kenneth stepped forward and spoke calmly to the animal. He drew his sword. The horse's large round eye followed the movement of the emerging silver blade. In a single stroke, the animal's pain ended. Kenneth extracted the blade and wiped the blood on the rear quarters of the dead creature. Then he returned his sword to his belt. Writing his frame, Kenneth gazed at his surroundings. The tall pines lining the muddy path stood like large green sentinels. Lopaloman sat to the east not far behind him. He hadn't been this far north in years. He took a deep breath and wondered how he had gotten to this point. Everything was wrong, nothing was right. What's happening? He whispered to himself. Look here, the hermit shouted. Kenneth turned toward the old man. He had reappeared, leading a horse behind him. I found this for you, the old man said. The Viking who lost it won't be needing it any longer. He approached Kenneth. Follow me, he said, and he led Kenneth and the horse away from the path in the direction of the lock. The two stepped into a clearing. The opening before them was a broad expanse, covered with knee-high grass, thick and green. Its downward sloping terrain extended a few hundred yards before it stopped at the bank of the lock. Only a single oak and a lifeless pile of blackened wood and ash occupied the open field. As the two approached the ash heap, the old man cursed and stepped past it. Kenneth stopped and stared at the pile of rubble. The smell of the burnt wood filled his nostrils. The old hermit paused and turned to Kenneth. They took all I had. For forty years, that pile of char was my home, survived a thousand storms, a few famines, and some awful winters. Those damnable savages felt they could take from me as they pleased. What could a tired old man do to stop them, their animals? He quieted and led the horse to the oak tree and tied it to its trunk. They burned your home? Kenneth asked. When did they do this? Two nights ago, he said. As the sun was setting, they came through. From the north, they rode south. They figured they'd stop and burn my home, why, I don't know, maybe because they're devils from hell. He cursed again under his breath, then motioned to Kenneth, come with me. He left the horse and led Kenneth through the field. The old man stopped beside a mound of broken grass. He bent down and cleared the grass, revealing a small wooden hatch in the ground. He lifted the hatch, moved it aside, and stepped down into the earth. Kenneth followed. The sloping ground eased into a dimly lit hole. Once inside, the old man picked up a burning candle and used it to light three others, illuminating the dank pit that served as a rudimentary cellar. The candlelight hardly filled the small room, but enough to reveal the old man's few meager possessions. A half-eaten loaf of bread sat on a small table next to a round of cheese and a tattered knife that looked to be a hundred years old. On the far end of the table sat a large basket of strawberries and two rockfish. The fish odor, mixed with the moist earthy musk, explained the cellar's unpleasant scent. Kenneth stepped deeper into the cavity and found he had to hunch to avoid bumping into the clay ceiling above his head. He stared at the bread and cheese, and his stomach began to rumble. He hadn't realized how hungry he'd become. Sit. You should eat. 
The old hermit motioned for Kenneth to take the only stool in the makeshift cellar. Then he pushed the bread and cheese across the table toward Kenneth. Exhausted, Kenneth sat down without uttering a word. He would not resist the old man's offer. He grabbed the bread and tore it in two. He consumed it as if he hadn't eaten in weeks. What's your name? Kenneth, Kenneth replied tersely, not feeling much for talk. A lengthy pause passed before another word was spoken. Kenneth, what's your plan once you find the Vikings? The hermit asked, and he found a wooden box that doubled as a stool and sat across from the younger Scot. He squinted at Kenneth, waiting quietly for a reply. Kenneth's gaze lifted from his bread, and he stared at the old man. The light from the candle on the table made the old man look ancient. His deeply sunken eyes appeared as hollow pits in his head. Kenneth noticed that the man had an odd habit of biting the side of his lower lip when he wasn't speaking. Maybe it was something he did when he was anxious, or maybe he did it at other times too. Each time he bit his lip, his mouth curled, exposing his rotting teeth. Even the dim light of the cellar couldn't hide their crooked black edges. Kenneth finally spoke, I don't have a plan, except to free my family, who I believe are now the prisoners of those animals. From the way you rode after them, you seemed hell-bent on catching them. Where are you from? Renton. I'm the son of Alpin of Renton, Kenneth said before swallowing the piece of bread soaking in his mouth. Then he lifted the tattered knife from the table and cut into the round of cheese. You are the son of Alpin, Alpin, son of Eochade. The old man's voice rose as he brushed off a once-faded memory. Yes, son of Alpin, son of Eochade, how is it you know my grandfather's name, old man? Kenneth asked and his brow lifted. You say I'm old, but there was a day when I was as young as you. The hermit lifted from his wooden box and stood. Because of his smaller stature, he didn't have to hunch as Kenneth did. When I was a young man, probably not quite forty, I knew your grandfather, Eochade. He was a few years younger than I was. He was a rare man, he possessed something few others possess, charisma. He had a way of winning the hearts and minds of others. With his tongue alone, he could change doubters to believers. Kenneth set down his bread and cheese, waiting to hear more. He'd heard stories from his father, yet he'd never heard enough. In that time, the leaders of Dalriada in Kintyre came together at Dunad to fight an enemy that came from the sea. It was at Dunad that we battled the Vikings. He peered at Kenneth, you know the monsters have been here before. Kenneth nodded, taking in every word. This encounter occurred about forty years ago. The Vikings struck hard, pillaging our abbeys for treasures and relics. In time, we drove them from Dalriada. Yet after they were pushed out, our own men began to fight over the leadership of our people. Two groups formed, and men took sides. The old man paused. So what happened between the two sides? Was my grandfather part of them? No, Eochade was not part of either group. There were two men who made claims of kingship, Gobran and a second Scot. The two claimed kingship over the Dalriadans, but their claims had no grounds, neither claim was just or right. Eventually, fighting began and we warred among ourselves. The fighting was wrong, it's awful for a man to die at the hand of his enemy, but far worse to die at the hand of his brother. The old man rubbed his face and stepped away from the table. It was your grandfather who called out the Scots, daring them to turn from their recklessness and disavow those claiming to be king. And so, go on, Kenneth insisted. 
Many men deserted the two vying for kingship, and they rallied behind your grandfather. Soon after, Gobran died in his bed with a knife in his throat, and his claim of kingship died with him. It was then that the other man claiming to be king vanished. He was never seen again in western Dalriada. And my grandfather. Well, as I said, he held the hearts of the men. With Gobran dead and the other man missing, I believe your grandfather could have become king. But he didn't. No, he didn't want to rule, he wanted to live. And he did. With the fighting over, your grandfather returned to his land, and there he tended crops and herded sheep. My father said he was killed in battle. Were you with him when he died? He was killed in battle. He was killed by the Vikings, eight years after the civil war had passed. The Vikings reappeared in Dalriada, and many Scots lost their lives at Benesson. It was there your grandfather lost his. He was a noble man, Kenneth. A man to be proud of, he'd be proud of your courage in hunting them devils. Seems to be a family trait. The hermit mustered a toothy grin. How is it you know of my grandfather? Did you ever fight with him? No. I never fought at his side. I was too foolish with my own aspirations to have any real wisdom in those days, the old man said as he approached the table and slowly lowered to his stool-like box. His head sunk, his eyes dropped, and he ran his crooked fingers through his dingy white hair. I don't understand, Kenneth said. How did you know him? The old man paused a moment before replying. I spoke of Gobran and the other man, the two fools vying to be king. Kenneth, I was the other fool, he said sadly, staring into Kenneth's eyes. Kenneth sat as still as a stone staring back at the old man. The man spoke again, his tone low and subdued, I was there when they buried your grandfather. I saw your father, he was still a boy, not yet a man. He was a good many years younger than you are now. Many came to the burial. It was near the small abbey in Iona. It was a dignified burial. A procession of men walked the street of the dead to the burial ground, the religious Oran. I was no longer the man I'd once been. I had seen how pride tore apart lives, I spent eight years repenting of that pride. No one recognized me in the crowds at Iona. I made sure of that. It didn't matter though, I was a long-forgotten memory by then. The old man continued his confession, I had come to Iona to pay my respects. In my heart, I wanted to give your grandfather something, something that was more his than mine. The old man stood and stepped to the back of the dimly lit den. He stooped and grabbed the edge of a cloth that covered something on the floor in the corner. He removed the cloth and then grabbed a candle and held it above his head. I want you to see this. Kenneth stood and peered over the old man's shoulder. What is it? This, son, is a treasure that belongs to a people, not a man. It should be resting in Iona, beside those men who were once great among us. He held up the light and let it shine over the old relic. Kenneth gazed down at a large square stone sitting on the ground, worn and aged. Is that the stone? The stone of destiny, it is, son. Your father has spoken of it. Kenneth nodded, struck by disbelief and the irony that the once noble stone cut long ago now sat in the dreariness of an obscure and insignificant cellar. The old hermit continued, legend says that the Lord himself fashioned this stone for his people. It was this same stone that was given to us in ages past, the very stone that the patriarch Jacob rested his head upon after wrestling with God. 
The old man gave Kenneth the candle and ambled back to the table. Kenneth held the small flame over the large square-cut stone. He reached to touch it and wiped his finger across a moist film of grime that covered its surface. The stone measured roughly two feet in length, over a foot in width, and stood a foot off the ground. Kenneth reckoned the stone weighed a couple hundred pounds. He had heard many tales of the Stone of Destiny, tales of kings and battles and treachery and war, but the stone had been missing for more than a generation. As kings of the past had faded from Dalriada, so too had the memories of the stone. Kenneth had always figured that no Scot would ever again lay eyes upon the stone, and yet here he stood beside it in the old man's cellar, beholding the stone with his own eyes and touching it with his own hands. The stone has not seen daylight in thirty years. Dalriada was once ruled by noble men, kings who saw beyond themselves. Those were seasons when the sun shone brightly upon Dalriada. But in time, darkness set in, and men with darkened hearts sought to be king. The old man grew more bitter as he continued to grumble. I was willing to take men to their death for that stone, willing to kill my own countrymen for it. The old man choked on his words. He stood and paced the ten-foot floor of the cellar, muttering under his breath as he moved. Kenneth remained in the corner, watching the old man bathe himself in condemnation. That is not my stone. The hermit burst out in anger. It doesn't belong to a murderer, it belongs to better men, noble men, men who gave themselves for their people. Kenneth's muscles knotted inside. He stood motionless, gazing at the old man, not knowing whether to despise him or pity him. He did both. As the old man wrung his hands in torment, Kenneth eased from the stone and returned to the table. He sat for a moment, unsure of what to say, then he spoke, There is good in Dalriada, much good, there is life, and there are families and men who still fight for what is right, why do you speak like this? Good. What is left of good? The old man threw his hands in the air. All I have sits in a pile of ashes, and you, you speak of family that you've lost to those Viking devils with no hope of stopping them from taking all of Dalriada. Nonsense! Kenneth shouted. My father will come with a thousand Dalriadans. He waits in Renton now, where men from across Dalriada will join him to defeat our enemy. Son, your youth blinds your vision. These men have no loyalty to your father. They will stand for a day, but when their eyes see the blade of the Viking sword, or their bellies feel the emptiness of winter, they will drop their swords and run for shelter, only to be pursued by the Vikings and cut down from behind. Kenneth glanced back at the dark corner and the ancient stone, and then he peered at the hermit. Are you not the one who is blind, blinded by your past, unable to see a future different from your own day? The candle on the table flickered as Kenneth spoke, bending and stretching the shadows across the cellar walls. Kenneth stood and stared long into the hermit's small round eyes. Apathy is no less evil than tyranny. One destroys the power to act and the other acts with the power to destroy. They are both grave evils, and I will not be guilty of either. Kenneth exclaimed. His eyes narrowed, and he shook his head in disgust. Time will tell who is blind, old man. Time will tell. Kenneth finished and stood motionless, his gaze remained on the hopeless hermit. Then he pushed past the old man and ascended the sloping entry of the musty cellar. Escaping the dank hole in the ground, Kenneth rose from the earth, and the remaining light of dusk fell upon him as he stepped into the world above. The thick mud of the worn path hid the large rock lying in the middle of the trail. The driver never saw it. 
In an instant, the cart's rear wheel hit the hidden fixture with a loud thump. The rock didn't move, yet the rear of the cart lifted into the air and crashed to the ground. Snap! The hind axle of the cart split like a twig, and the rear left wheel broke free and wobbled off the path. The cart's back corner struck the ground and sunk like an anchor in the mud, tossing the captives backwards in the cage. The driver bobbed violently back and forth, and his skull struck the wooden posts of the prison cage behind him. Dazed, the man shook his head to collect his bearings, then he sat erect and quickly gathered his grip on the reins and yanked. The horses bristled under the hard pull, bucking and fighting their harnesses. Their muscular necks flexed and heaved, and the ropes binding their chests drew tighter. A nearby rider dismounted and hurried to grab the leads of the beasts. The man tugged and leaned his weight into the ropes to settle the animals. After several moments, the horses eased and calmed, prancing in place and snorting at one another in frustration. Inside the wooden cage, the captives lay pressed in a twisted heap at the rear of the cart. Some grabbed the wood bars to extract themselves from the pile of bodies, while others groaned and waited to right themselves. Several Vikings slid from their horses and surrounded the cage. With swords drawn, they began shouting at the captives and striking their blades against the wooden posts. Two more Vikings dismounted and approached the rear of the cart. Dropping to their knees, they scooted through the mud to scan the underbelly and inspect the damaged axle. A man beside the cart shouted ahead for the procession to halt. The forward pack slowed, and a dozen riders circled back on their horses, watching the chaos and even finding amusement in the captives' struggle. The less interested riders broke from the crowd and trotted to the creek beside the path to resupply their water. Jorand, the largest of the Vikings, rode to the cart. Fuming with irritation, he dismounted his horse, dropped to the ground, and surveyed the wreckage. Sufficiently displeased, he lifted his head and shouted, Get the prisoners out of there. Put them in the other carts. We can't fix this with them inside. But Jorand, the other carts are too full, one man replied. They won't handle the weight. Shut your mouth and put them in the other carts. We can't leave until this gets fixed, now move. What's the problem? Halfton yelled as he approached, his tone caustic and sour. The Vikings surrounding the cart stirred and began to busy themselves. Halfton trotted his horse, through the crowd of men with Codron behind him. A wheel broke, Jorand replied. We're moving the slaves to the other carts until we fix this one. The sun is nearly down. If your men can't fix it quickly, then we leave it here, Halfton barked. It will take a good bit of time to fix. Enough? If you can't fix it, then tie the slaves together, Halfton said, pointing at the caged captives from his perch. Tie them in a line behind a horse, they'll walk from here. Halfton turned his steed, and he rode between the men and disappeared. But Halfton, if the cart doesn't get fixed, their walking will only slow us down. Then drag em, Halfton shouted without looking back. Jorand yelled the new orders to the men. Two Vikings pried open the door of the wooden cage and motioned to the Scots. The captives slowly rose, struggling to exit their prison and fighting to balance themselves on the tilted cart. The first man out of the cage was a Scot named Gavin. He was a small framed, thin young man just shy of thirty. He'd come to Renton for supplies early that morning when he found himself caught in the Viking raid. Gavin stepped from the cart and planted his spindly form in front of the Vikings. He glared ahead as if the ground he occupied was his own, 
even daring them to take it from him. His diminutive build was of little threat to the husky Vikings encircling him. They waited for him to move, but he didn't. He stood stock still, blocking the others from exiting the cage. Move, Scott. Jorand hollered and shoved Gavin to the side. The push sent Gavin sprawling several feet from the portion of earth he'd claimed. Gavin regained his balance and peered at Jorand, yet the hulking Viking paid him no regard. He was a mammoth of a man, one who suffered neither heroes nor fools. Jorand turned to the next Scot, let's go. The Scots quickly jumped from the teetering cart in a manner that suited him. Then Jorand walked away, glaring at Gavin as he departed. Gavin stared back at the giant yet elected not to speak. As the captives emptied the cage, the Scot with the wounded side eased to the opening. His diminished state had left him listless and frail. He slowly lifted one foot and took a long step down. When his second foot followed he stumbled and fell. Get up. Get up, I said. A voice growled, and then a boot thumped the Scot's midsection, spinning him to his backside. The Scot rolled and groveled in pain. Stop it. Nessa screamed. She jumped from the cart and knelt beside the young man to check the cloth bandage she'd wrapped around his side. It was loose. She began to tighten it. Suddenly, two hands gripped her shoulders. Her weight disappeared as she was lifted off her feet. A haughty laughter filled her ears, and then she was spun like a ragdoll. Her eyes landed on her assailant. The man was hideously ugly. This is a pretty one, and isn't she sweet? The man ogled her figure up and down as he taunted. Nessa closed her eyes and the man's hot breath raked across her nostrils. She summoned the courage to look again. The Viking's eyes were like coal. A scar ran across his left cheek and up across his eyebrow. His dark teeth were large and grey, but they were insufficient to shield his wretched breath, reeking of rotten fish. Nessa gagged and fought to free herself. Lifting her arms, she wedged her limbs between her body and his. Then she pushed with all her strength, but the man's grip only tightened. The Viking laughed, and his jagged scar danced on his cheek. Others prodded with jeers and whistles. Suddenly, the man lurched forward to kiss her. His mouth got no closer than a finger's width before his skull snapped back. His helmet tumbled from his head, and he staggered backward and fell to the ground. Aiden released his grip on the man's ratty hair, having nearly ripped it from his scalp. In an instant, three Vikings were on top of Aiden, punching him and wrestling him to his knees. Two held his arms, and the third grabbed him around the neck, rubbing hard against his blistered flesh. A guttural scream erupted from Aiden's throat, scattering even the birds of the treetops into flight. Aiden had sustained multiple abrasions from his sword fight with the Vikings in Renton, but that was not what pained him. Rather, it was the severe burns he'd suffered during the attack. In the skirmish at his home, Aiden had fallen into the flames, suffering burns along the left side of his body. The burns on his shoulder, neck, and cheek had swollen into large blisters, leaving his skin raw and weeping. The rip across Aiden's neck was more than he could bear. The pain sent him reeling. He lost focus and fell to his hands and knees, writhing from the burning sting. Drool ran from his mouth. He fought to gather his breath, and his mind faded in and out of blackness. The Viking with the scarred eye erected himself. He watched as Aiden wandered aimlessly on the ground, panting and heaving to remain conscious. The Viking surveyed his spectators and then stepped toward Aiden. 
Looks like the young Scot has lost his way, he mocked, attempting to veil the shame of having been tugged to the ground. He grabbed Aidan by the back of his shirt and jerked him to his feet. Nessa ran to her brother but was stopped by the strong arm of a Viking. She kicked to free herself, yet she could only watch while clutched in her captor's grip. Aidan stood upright. His knees wobbled as he labored to gain his balance. The Viking with the scar squared face to face with Aidan. He peered at the shredded blisters lining the side of Aidan's cheek and the pool of ooze sliding down his skin. Boy, if you hope to live another day, you had better not put a hand on me again. Smack. The sudden slap twisted Aidan's head sideways. His body followed. The blow was crippling. Pain surged through his muscles and joints, and he blacked out before he hit the ground. Aidan. Nessa shook herself free and ran to Aidan as he lay in a slump on the ground. She knelt beside him and lifted his head, then shook him gently. He was unresponsive, his breathing faint. Get these Scots tied up, Joran shouted. We get this cart fixed now, or we'll have a slow day ahead of us. Night is coming soon. Nessa's eyes gazed over her brother. His face was moist with ooze and blood while the remainder of his tired frame lay covered in dirt and soot. She didn't want to lose him. She sat with Aidan in her arms, and she pulled him close, pressing him against her small frame. She closed her eyes, and in her heart she prayed for him. Chorich finished gathering supplies for the coming ride, wondering when his father would return from Renton, wondering how much damage had been done. He tied his last satchel to his horse and then grabbed a log. He tossed the wool onto the pit of fire and peered at the skinned carcass of the eight-point buck skewing over the pit's hot flames. His thoughts lingered and he turned his gaze toward the path to Renton. The awful recollections of returning from the hunt and spotting the ashen remains of his family's home replayed in his mind. The image cycled over and over in his head before he broke from his trance, seeing his father approach in the distance. Chorich double-checked the food satchel and water sack tied to his horse. He was ready. Then he turned and waited for his father as he broke into the open field and rode across the blackened patches of burnt earth. Chorich brooded in anger, wondering of the news his father had of Renton. He wanted to skew the murderers who had taken from his family. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to kill them all. He stood silently, waiting, waiting and brooding. Alpin stopped his horse beside the fire pit and dismounted. His eyes met Chorich's. The fact that he was troubled was evident, it was etched upon his face. And though the smell of searing venison struck him and his hunger stirred, he ignored it and kept his gaze fixed upon his son. It's not good, Chorich. How bad is it? Chorich replied. Alpin hesitated before speaking. Renton is all but destroyed, burned, many have been killed and others taken captive. And Chorich, I'm not sure, I? What father? What is it? Constantine sent a messenger from Cashel. He found me in Renton. Chorich, Kenneth is not in Cashel. He's not in Cashel. What do you mean? Mother said he left for Cashel. Isn't Arabella there? He's got to be there. Arabella is there. She's with Constantine, Alpin replied. She and Kenneth were together last night. They came back here this morning and found the place burned and everyone missing. They went to Renton, and were attacked by Vikings. Some of the villagers told me that Kenneth killed three of them and... So where is he? 
Chorich demanded, his imagination spinning. The messenger reported that Kenneth sent Arabella back to Cashel and then he went after Aidan and Nessa, alone. Kenneth thought your mother had been taken, too. They didn't know Siana, and your mother was safe. So Arabella is safe, and Kenneth is, is alive, and he's gone after the Vikings alone. This is madness. Chorich, we have to keep our wits. We'll find them. Constantine sent word that he and the men of Cashel will arrive tomorrow. Alpin eyed the setting sun. Soon its light would be scarce. He shook his head and gazed at Chorich. You're not going to like what I have to say, but we can't go after Aiden and Nessa tonight. Father, we must. We must leave now? We're ready? Les and Ronan are ready. We've packed the supplies, we should go now while we can still find them. Chorich, like you, I am anxious to leave. I agree we should go, and soon, but tomorrow we will. Father, we can't wait for tomorrow. We can't wait for every man in Dalriada to come. It'll take several more days for them to arrive. It'll be too late. We'll lose them, we must go now. We're not simply waiting for the others. We're waiting for sunlight as well. We won't make any progress tonight, it's too late. We'll eat, we'll rest, and we'll be strong for the morning. Father, I don't like this. Every moment wasted is a moment we've lost. In the morning, we will have daylight and likely more men, and we'll need both. Constantine's scout said that the men from Cashel are assembling and could be here as early as tomorrow. And the men from Milton and Dumbarton will soon follow. They'll bring others from their surrounding towns and villages. Chorich, we'll be stronger tomorrow. My brothers and sister may be dead tomorrow, ten thousand men won't help them then. Alpin's jaw clenched. He felt an urge to strike his son. He bit down harder and then took a breath. Son, we will find your brothers and sister in time, but for now we must commit them to the mercy of God. I have nothing more to say. Chorich said no more, yet his anger still burned. The two stood shoulder to shoulder, staring at the pit's red flames. Alpin stepped to the fire and pulled a knife from his waist. He cut a piece of meat from the rear haunches of the deer. He chewed it and swallowed. If the others don't arrive by quarter day tomorrow, then we'll go without them to find Nessa and your brothers and the others. Chorich nodded. I'll be ready? Ronan and Les will be ready. If we do leave before the others, I'll have Luig stay behind to assemble the men as they arrive. My hope is that they arrive in time, and we can go as one. Alpin reached over the flames and cut another piece of meat. It would be ready soon. They would need to eat. They would need their strength. Much had been lost, and much remained to be found.